0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: My thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants Limited of Pershore, Worcestershire. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and uh, hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries along the way. Oh, really cold, damp weather for most of uh, the past week and time for lots of layers of clothes to keep out the cold. I've been uh, busy out and about gathering up end-of-season bulbs to distribute to school garden clubs. Narcissus and tulips planted uh, before Christmas, well, quite honestly, uh, into the new year, will make good root and flower well next spring. The uh, delivery problems some uh, retailers had and shortage of lorry drivers meant uh, some of the top cultivars of bulbs arriving from Holland came very late. And if you search the end-of-season offers, usually something like buy one, get one free, there are some really good bargains to be found. Cultivars that uh, would normally sell out very quick and are relatively uh, recently introduced uh, can be found if uh, you take a little time. Now, what's new? Well, first, my congratulations to the Garden Centre Association Best Christmas Display winners. And they are in the destination garden centres that uh, the very big ones. First place went to Barton Grange at Preston, Boy they do a magnificent job with Everything they handled, I think. Uh, and c- close runner-up were Bent's garden centre at Warrington. And the third were Garson's Farm in Isha. In the uh, smaller turnover garden centres, then the top position went to Castle Gardens in Sherbourne, Dorset. Next, Old Railway Line at Powis. The third, Brimsmore Gardens in Yeovil. So, uh, if you want to go and see uh, some really sparkling Christmas displays, uh, I hear that uh, Nicholas Marshall's County House Group has uh, amicably parted company with their uh, Surrey Garden Centre so that they can concentrate on the plant centres, farm shops and restaurants going into stately homes. The first should be uh, in operation this coming year in Gloucestershire, Hampshire and Norfolk. Um just a quick mention that Buckingham Garden Centre are donating 50 pence from every Christmas tree sold to plant trees in Malawi. Any horticultural student listening, uh, there's a fully funded year in the States for a British student horticulturist open for application at the world-renowned Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania. That is an unbelievable garden, and to spend a year there would be fantastic. It's sponsored by the Garden Club of America, Longwood Gardens, and the Royal Horticultural Society. You'll find all the application details uh, on the RHS website, and that is rhs.org.uk forward slash bursaries. And the application closes on the 14th of January, 2022. I'm very pleased to introduce Douglas Doug Harris, the two of us, contemporaries of uh, Brittle College, but uh, like most people, he's younger than me, of course, and so was there a year or two after. Doug, how are things? I think you're Berkshire, aren't you? Although you're sort of getting down well in Berkshire. In
2: North Hampshire, but the postal address is Berkshire because we're so near Newbury. We're in the North Hampshire Downs, an elevation of 400 feet.
1: And the nursery is called Penwood Nursery.
2: That's right, at Penwood.
1: Now, when the two of us started in our horticultural careers and training, uh, you went quite a, a different route to me and learnt to use a knife quite proficiently. C- could you just take us gently through your early years in this business?
2: Yes, of course. Just after leaving Rittle, I found my way down to Hillier's because I was interested in trees and shrubs at the time, and that started a, a very informative and interesting and exciting time of my career. I initially worked on their Eastley Nursery, which was about eight miles from Winchester, which was their base. And John Hillier was there at the same time, and we were spade hands, and we would dig trees and shrubs together and root ball plants and pack them into lorries with a, a team of about 15 men at the time. After a short while, for some reason unknown, I was moved to the Chandler's Ford Nursery, well, I, I then work with in the propagating department, with people like Vic Pulowski, who I believe you you knew at one time, and certainly you would have known Peter Dummer, two fantastic propagators, who had worked their way through the industry. I know Vic was a horticulturalist when he was in Poland and stayed here after the war. And became a, um, a skilled propagator. He also played the violin, believe it or not.
1: So it was quite entertaining. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't know <laughs> that. I didn't know he played violin. That's that's the beauty of these interviews. Yeah. We unearth all kinds of crazy bits of information. Yeah, this is amazing.
2: <laughs> but the three of us worked together. I was very much the boy. I still am when I see any of these old hands, and um, I did all the the odd jobs. But learned to wield a knife, and we grafted rhododendrons and oaks and beech and that sort of thing for about a year it was a very happy time if you i'm sure that you can imagine what it was like in midwinter bench grafting and, and in a nice warm um, shed at the end of the glass house and um, whittling at, at the wood and then putting them in the glass house and watching them grow it was a very happy time but then i was moved again they asked me to go on a landscape project um, at Hilliard's. So I was asked to go up to Wales. So did a planting project there with three other young people about my own age. Um, and we were there for, for several months. And when I came back to Winchester, I was asked to go in the drawing office. So I did design work for a few years. That was my period at Hilliers, But it was very happy. I learned a lot, met some super people like John Bond, who ran the Queen's Garden, Um There's a whole host of people there, and Brian Humphrey arrived at about that time. Um, He he arrived about a year after me, and Roy Lancaster. All these names you'll be familiar with, and many of your listeners will probably know about them as well. Um, They've all written books, um, so they're they're quite famous, and many of them are television personalities.
1: Yeah, indeed. But to learn at the hands of those really skilled nursery Stock people was quite remarkable, but you moved on from Hillier's. Why did you move, and where did you go?
2: Well, when I was at Hillier's, they used to do a lot of showing, and I was asked by H.G. Hillier, who was my boss, the ultimate boss, great, great man, um, if I would uh, assist with an exhibition in Germany at the Egar Internationale Gartenbau Ausstellung. I hope you're impressed. And I went with him and Mrs. Hillier to Germany in Hamburg, and we set up a, an exhibit there. And we were awarded a gold medal. I was just a boy. I was doing as I was told, but I enjoyed it very much. And then decided, well, why not go and try and do some work in Germany? Because I thought their landscaping, especially their hard landscaping, was extremely good. So I took myself off to Germany on a whim in late September and decided to work there for a while and see if I could learn something. What i had forgotten is that I didn't speak German, so when I (laughs) arrived, (laughs) um, um, I had to get a job on a, a landscape company, building roads and laying paving stones and tarmac until I could pick up a bit of the language. And then when we were laid off in the winter because it was so cold, I managed to find employment at an experimental station near Bonn, Friesdorf, doing work on freezers and on a whole manner of crops and hydrangeas, which I'd grown when I, earlier on when I was a pre-college student, when, when I was working in the Lee Valley at Rochford's. So I was able to pick up from there and um, worked that for, for about eight or nine months. And that came to an end because while I was there, I'd, I'd applied for a, a Bowles Travelling Scholarship somehow or another i managed to fool somebody in the rhs and they awarded it to me so i then took off to the united states and worked over there met jim wells who, who wrote the book on plant propagation practices uh, stayed um, some time with him he taught me a great deal as well but then i i landed up at new york botanic gardens in the bronx um working there
1: you must have had some nerve as a young man it's an unbelievable story.
2: It just happens. When you're young and single, you don't worry about things and you're reasonably fit. You feel you can cope with anything. <laughs> so it, it just seemed like a good idea at the time, um, especially meeting Jim Wells and staying with him for a few weeks until I found uh, a more permanent uh, job with the New York Botanics. But I, I was let into the Botanics uh, only grudgingly because they'd spent all their money. This was in the Bronx Um, and they couldn't employ anybody else. But they suddenly realized that they'd got some winter workers there. So I joined a Puerto Rican gang and was uh, allowed to work there under the name of um, Douglasio Harriso or something like this. (laughs) (laughs) So that they thought I was a Puerto Rican. (laughs) Doug, what was life like in the Bronx? Living in the center of the Bronx... Um, It's a name that one had heard of. It was the rough area of New York, and it was a very mixed community. I I was told by people later uh, while I was in America that it was a rough place and it was a dangerous place to live, but I didn't notice it at the time. (laughs) I I just lived with it. I remember going into a a laundrette one evening and having to wait half an hour, popped into Haldane's Irish Bar, uh, which was next to the laundrette, just for a quick half, as I would have done perhaps in England, and, uh, and suddenly realised, I was quickly made aware, that Haldane's Irish Bar contained a lot of Irishmen. And it was St. Patrick's night, so I just couldn't get out. You know, they, they insisted on linking arms and, and, and asking me what I was doing and um, you know, making me very, very welcome. And I staggered out and my laundry was still going round in the drum next door. And I don't know quite how I made it, but um, that's the sort of thing that would happen
1: Doug things must have been a little different here in the UK and Europe in 1960s uh, and then in New York did you notice a difference?
2: that would have been somewhere around about 64 quite different from the rural areas of um, Holland and Germany and, and even England and Hampshire quite different it's a strange thing I enjoyed it I'm I, glad I went but I wouldn't want to live there I wouldn't want to live in the States or work there. It's a, it was a harder place to work. But um, I, I was in a good community um, because I'd worked in Germany I picked up a little smattering of German. And so I could understand a little bit of Yiddish, which was spoken in the Bronx. So when I spoke a little bit of Yiddish, um, like Zaymit Glick, something like this was, good, good, be with you, you know, um, um, then I was more or less accepted. It's an interesting experience. But, but then I met people who, who took me all round America in, in a Cadillac, of all things, up, up in, as far as Canada and um, up, up through Maine. And we saw the autumn colours. There were some marvellous experiences there.
1: Well, then, Doug, what brought you back?
2: I suppose ran out of money. <laughs> um, scholarship money had gone. Um, I'd seen as much as I could. I'd travelled. And then I looked for employment back in this country, joined an um, Chemical company. As a horticulture advisor on the horticultural side, liked it but not too much. But then the opportunity came to do something a bit different. Uh, someone suggested I should join, believe it or not, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. So I joined the NAS, as it used to be known as National Agricultural Advisory Service, and became a an, uh, county advisor in horticulture for Derbyshire. Uh, so that was an interesting thing. I was there for a year, then. They moved me to experimental station where I did experimental work on seed germination, herbicides, a um, whole range of different projects.
1: The experience that you're listing, Doug, is, is uh, you know, I just can't understand it. Nobody can match that, I'm sure. Well,
2: yes, but I, I would remind you, Peter, that if you remember our lecturers at Rittle, one of them as I left, as he shook my hands and said goodbye, he said... Well, Harris, my boy, said, um, you have dived deeply into the fountain of knowledge and come up perfectly dry. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> you, you can imagine who that might be, but we, we remained friends in spite of that, and we visited each other several times. He visited me when I was an expert at, at, at other places. Um, so we remained good friends in spite of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so now we have you in the advisory service at Reading.
2: I suppose I was still hankering after the industry because I, w- when I had left school, I'd, I and I, when I was at school, um, I joined a nursery in the summer holidays to earn some pocket money, and and um, I, I just liked the people in the industry. Um, it just suited my temperament and the way I was, uh, and, and so. People in the industry appealed to me and the way they lived and um, their, their attitude and their love of plants and how they were motivated by plants. So I wanted to get back to the first-hand industry. And somebody wrote to me and said, would I like to apply for a job as manager at Exbury? So I applied for that and uh, saw uh, one or two people and then Eddie Rothschild up in um, London um, had an interview there and we got on well and I was offered the job. So I went to Exbury as a manager then became director then managing director over a period of 9 years goodness
1: i mean you just keep dropping bigger and bigger names as as we go, as we go on through this life story well. <laughs> well i don't mean to it's just the
2: way it's just the way it goes but but, but don't forget that when i started off you know and, and and the friends that i had in my early life i still have Pete Dummer was a cowman when he started, and a you know, soul of the, of the earth, if you understand. Yes, um, I do. And, and these are lovely people, lovely people. And the other people are equally lovely, but just big names. But, but they still have this common bond in gardening. It didn't make any difference whether you're an ex-cowman or, or, or whether you were a, a lord somebody and, 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 and a multimillionaire, if you love gardening, and there are a lot of rich people who love yeah, gardening.
1: But, I mean, Exbury and its azaleas and its collections of plants, another wonderful place to gain experience.
2: Well, it was. It, is a, it, has, it has 200 acres of garden and 60 acres of nursery, and my job was to look after that. And we had to make the money on the nursery to maintain the garden, um, so which was quite a task I know that I'd be working on the nursery during the day and then the evening, on a Friday evening, Eddie would go by and he'd burp his horn, which I knew that he he was on his way home. And in half an hour, he'd come and pick me up and we'd go around the garden. He just loved his plants. And he liked me because I like plants. So we would spend the evening there. And on Saturday, um, he would have guests at his home and I'd be asked to go around with them. Um, So you meet lots of important people. The Rockefellers and the Queen and the whole lot. And all all these people you meet in in these circumstances, but we we all had a common interest in
1: in gardens. The Rockefellers and the Queen. I mean, you just slipped those gently in.
2: (laughs) Yeah, of course, you asked me. I wouldn't normally have (laughs) mentioned it.
1: (laughs) But then you left all of that.
2: No, while I was there, again, you have the opportunity when you're working for um, a big organisation like this, People hear of you, and they, because I'd been working on rhododendrons for a long time, people thought I was an expert. And I wasn't, of course, I just knew a little bit more than the average. So um, people, some uh, somebody asked me if I would act as a guide, because they wanted to go to Nepal and look at rhododendrons, would I act as a guide? So as a botanical guide, and off I went. So I took people around the Himalayas. And then someone else asked me to go do the same thing in the Andes. So I did that as well. And it's all interesting stuff. You don't earn any money. You know, I'm now you know, in my mid-30s, still penniless, but having a wonderful time seeing all these things going around the world. You, know, you don't get paid for this sort of thing, but but your expenses are paid. So I wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise, so I loved it.
1: So amongst your many other talents, you're a bit of a mountaineer?
2: Well, the mountaineer we went up to, it didn't go to, we didn't go above the snow line because we were looking for rotundendons. Well, I'm not a mountaineer. I can claim to be a walker, certainly in the past, but we got up to about eleven, twelve thousand 12,000 feet. We slept in the snow at that altitude. My wife and I went there. Um, we'd be in a tent and it'd be minus, not very really cold, minus six or seven, eight or nine at night. Um, but we were snug in our super sleeping bags, supplied as part of the tour that we went on. Uh, at times, you were very conscious of the fact That you are isolated. And whereas when you're in England, when you're carrying a camera, you you take your camera with you and you hold it tight or your wallet or whatever, you know, it doesn't doesn't get stolen. When you're in a place like that, you're so dependent on things like your boots. So you take your boots into the tent and you sleep with those under your pillow because not that I think anyone would have stolen them, but if they had stolen them, what would you do when you're four to five days' march away from civilization? Yeah, you know, the boots have become terribly important. You know, that's the that's the experience that I came back with. And, and while we were there, we saw other things. We had we had tours of, of Kathmandu and other places um, around Annapurna. We did a lot of work around Annapurna. And, and similarly, when I was in the Andes with other people, um, one of the first things you have to do is find out about the local flora. And and this again was exciting because. As you know, the southern hemisphere flora is totally different from the northern hemisphere. You know, you don't, you haven't got oaks and uh, you haven't got hawthorns and and, and carpinus, um, hornbeams, this sort of thing. You've got ostracedas, the um, southern cedar. My first night that I spent in Chile was sleeping under an ostracedas tree, and, and and to wake up in the morning and, and realize what you're you're sleeping under a huge tree which you've, you've barely heard of and never seen before. This was quite an exciting experience. And you see like Copiwe, the which was the Lepigeria rosea, their national flower, growing wild, climbing up a tree. The, these sorts of experiences, they, they stay with you. And Eucryphias, lovely tree, but when you see them maybe 30 feet tall at an avenue in a, in a road, it, it's quite stunning. And the bamboos, chuskiers, where you can um, eat the shoots of the bamboos in Chile as they do in China and Berberus darwinii growing wild, which was initially found by Darwin when he was on his tour on the Beagle. And I can go on like this for hours and bore you to tears, but these are the sorts of things that interested me and interested the people
1: with whom I was staying. Well, I promise you it doesn't bore me to tears. I'm just sitting here in absolute and complete awe.
2: Yeah, but you're another crazy gardener, aren't you?
1: (laughs) As I hope you will agree, Doug has a number of wonderful stories to tell, so much so that uh, we spoke for rather a long time, so I'm going to pause the interview midway. Next week, you'll be able to hear more from Doug, specifically with some information about his area of expertise and some more local stories. And my end piece, a quote from Steve Hatch. Plant orders do not arrive on sunny, warm Saturday mornings. I could not agree more when I set off in driving rain to help Royal Photographer Arthur Edwards plant his tree last Saturday as part of uh, Her Majesty the Queen's green canopy. You know, there's a saying, rain before seven, shine by 11. And the rain did stop and sun came out and uh, Arthur's apple tree... Corb is now well and truly planted. The apple Corb seemed uh, an appropriate one for Arthur the East End lad and it was named in a children's naming competition at the time of the uh, Paralympics in uh, East London. So let's hope uh, Corb makes some nice new roots in that well-prepared planting hole. Hope you have a good week. Look forward to uh, speaking again. Seven days' time. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Haylof Plants Limited of Pershore, Worcestershire. To my producer, Rich Charman, and of course to you for listening.